We're going to be looking at Acts 15 in the first few verses. If you were here last week, you know that we looked at this passage of Scripture, and we're going to revisit it, but in a little bit different light this morning. I'm just going to read the first few verses just to kind of give us the context again. I invite you, if you didn't hear last week's message, to uh, go online and listen to it sometime just to kind of get that side of of what I talked about and what Scripture talks about. And uh, this morning, uh, we're going to, like I said, we're going to pivot to a little bit different direction with uh, the same passage. So Acts 15, looking at just the first few verses. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles, that's non-Jews, had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Would you join me in prayer as we continue? Father God, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus and that your spirit resides among us to call us into your family and to shape and form us to know what it's like to live in your family. Father, we ask that as we look at scripture this morning and your word and as your spirit works in and through our minds and our thoughts and what's in our heart, that you would translate the words of scripture and what you have been doing throughout the ages among your people, among people who aren't even connected to you, but you've been calling us and everybody else to you. Father, we ask that as we look at that, you would translate what you're doing into the very specific details of our life. Father, lead us and guide us as we think about this this morning. It's by the power of your spirit and through your son Jesus that we pray this. Amen. This past week... Nick Saban, the University of Alabama football coach, and Jimbo Fisher, the University of Texas A&M football coach, held a public feud over their most recent recruiting classes. Texas A&M is noted this year as having the number one rated recruiting class. Alabama, as many of you probably know, is noted for its solid recruiting classes each and every year. Saban of Alabama conjectured that the recently implemented name, image, and likeness, which allows athletes to now get money for uh, themselves essentially as an athlete, that that has allowed Texas A&M to have a better recruiting class this year. Essentially, he's saying, like, well, the university can just dole out money to all their athletes, and that's what they did, and that's how they got all these athletes. Saban is highlighting that the ability to pay athletes has changed the landscape of college of the college athlete recruitment process. For the purposes of our time here today, I want to focus on how the recruitment of college athletes is very much about college coaches going to athletes in order to woo them to then come and play for them. And the money to be made for an athlete's name, image, and likeness has given colleges all the more leverage to woo athletes to their sports programs. And while while it is now commonplace for college coaches to recruit players from all across the country and not just their state or their region or surrounding their school, so too, this same approach is very descriptive of how many Christians approach evangelism. 
This approach has become a common way that Christians approach making Jesus known to those who haven't yet received him. Of more recent history, Christians in the United States likely fall into uh, one of two ends of a spectrum when it comes to evangelism. One end of the spectrum is the come-to-us approach, which usually involves Christians inviting unbelievers to encounter Jesus by coming to a church gathering. And the other end of the spectrum is the go-to-you approach, where Christians go directly to unbelievers to help them encounter Jesus. But we could also say there's probably a more nuanced version of both of these approaches. This particular approach involves going to believers to serve them, to love them, etc. But with the hope that they will still come to us, that is, come to our church gathering. This approach is at least an engaged approach. It's not a passive approach. It's not a just wait for people to come. It's an actually going to people approach. But it's still an approach bent toward an imagination of evangelism that envisions unbelievers coming to Jesus in and through our church gatherings. As we look through Acts 15 and the context of the Jerusalem and Antiochian churches represented within it, God's word presents a fourth nuance of possibility of envisioning how Christians can participate in making salvation in Jesus known to the world. What we encounter in God's word today is that salvation in Jesus is made known by the expressions of faith that we extend into the world. Salvation in Jesus has been made known to us by the faith that has been cultivated in and through the people who have gone before us. We talked about that in the message last week. But what's interesting about that is their faith was expressed in a way that contextualized the salvation of Jesus in a way that made sense for us to receive it. But we have the opportunity to make salvation in Jesus known to others by allowing our faith to extend into the particular context in which those people live. Which will mean that the faith of those whom we go to might likely take shape differently than what we've become accustomed to. It may even birth a new expression of the church. Their expression of the church might look entirely different from our current expression of the church. But those new expressions of the church can't happen if we don't extend our faith into the everyday context of people in the world. Salvation in Jesus is made known by the expressions of faith that we extend into the world. Salvation in Jesus is made known by the expressions of faith that we extend into the world. I don't know if any of you in here are WWE fans. I feel like people who follow the WWE are people who I never would think would follow WWE. That's been my experience at least. But a few weeks ago, I was actually driving downtown, and I actually was by the arena, and I noticed all these trucks were lined up behind the arena, and I started to notice, like, they all had WWE stuff on it, and I was like, oh my goodness, the WWE is here. But I could not imagine how many trucks, like, came for that event. But... Later online, so like a day later, I saw a clip from a scene during the event that happened at the hockey arena, and it was a wrestling wedding scene. Yes, you can laugh. I mean, I was just like, really? That's, that's part of this? But okay, whatever. But there was a guy in one of these scenes who was the wedding officiant, and the video I saw um, shows him talking to the crowd, and at one point he yells out, Yeah! To which the audience continues, yeah, let's go Buffalo. And as the audience continues that chant, 
the people around this guy who was talking are like, what is going on? Like, I don't think that was supposed to happen. Like, that's not part of the scene right now. Whether it was intended or not, the WWE person spoke the lingo that Buffalo people understood. Whereas if this same scene happened in Boston, it probably would happen very differently. Nobody would probably continue the chant. Because it's not part of their culture, right? Sharing the gospel, making salvation in Jesus known to others, functions similarly to the situation at the WWE event. The earliest iteration or version of Jesus' church became aware of salvation in Jesus by way of the Jewish culture. We get a glimpse of this in the earliest sermon given in Acts chapter 2, where the Apostle Peter uses the Jewish history and background to tell his audience about Jesus and the salvation that he offers. Peter references the Jewish scriptures, the words of the Jewish prophets and kings held in high esteem in Jewish history. When Peter speaks of Joel's prophecy in Acts 2, verses 17 through 22, or King David's words in Acts 2, verses 25 through 28, the Jewish audience whom Peter was engaging, they understood that, that, that language. They understood the lingo he was talking. For them, the mention of Joel's prophecy and David's words in connection with what Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection brought in a, a spirit-inspired aha moment. Because Peter was speaking their language. He was engaging their culture, and he was inviting them into the salvation of Jesus through the contextual manner of their culture. Later in Acts 2, verse 46, we see that these new believers in Jesus are expressing their faith in the temple courts daily. What we see here is that their faith in Jesus was now being expressed according to the Jewish culture in the temple. That's where they normally gathered, so they continued that in the temple. It makes sense how this message would translate to the culture of the Jewish people. But what about those who weren't Jewish? In Acts 15, amidst the council's discussion on how to handle non-Jews becoming believers in Jesus, the Apostle Peter recalls an encounter that he had, uh, some say upward of 10 years ago from when this council took place, where Peter encountered a man in Caesarea, which is a Roman and not a distinctly Jewish area, a man named Cornelius and his family. That encounter can be read in full in Acts chapter 10, if you would like. But an interesting insight about this man, Cornelius, comes out of Acts 10, where Cornelius is described as devout, a God-fearing person, one who gave generously to those in need, who one who prayed to God regularly. What we see here is that Cornelius is a God-fearer, but he wasn't Jewish. So you can maybe think of this as like he was kind of like an unchurched person. Like he was aware of God, but he didn't do the the religious things entirely. He did some of them, but not all of them. Meaning he was sympathetic to the Jewish faith. He accepted their worldview and their scriptures to a degree, but he didn't fully convert to it. With this background of Cornelius' life, we can gather that Cornelius is someone who would have understood the lingo of Jesus through the Jewish culture. Even though he wasn't a full Jew, he was still aware of that culture. And so when the gospel, the good news of Jesus was presented to him, he was like, I'm tracking, I'm following, I'm aware of that stuff. It makes sense to me. And then he converts to following Jesus. 
This past week, I ran across an article that describes a segment of the population as the ums. Now, you probably likely haven't heard that term before. You may have heard terms like this, though, before. Uh, sociologically, there have been terms to describe people and their, and their connection or un, their disconnection, if you will, from church as the nuns, not nuns like uh, in the Catholic church, but nuns like N-O-N-E-S, and the duns. The nuns is a reference to those who um, are said to be just done or, you know, or sorry, let me rephrase that. The Nuns are those who have just no connection to like church or religion or anything organized religiously at all. Like they're just very secular entirely. Like they just don't have a connection to a faith, if you will. The duns are those who have been connected to a faith of some sort, but they've detached themselves from it. Like they're just done with it. So they've moved away from it. But this new category, the ums, the author of the article is trying to capture this group of people who are kind of left in the wake of all the shutdowns from COVID. The, the ums are the people who didn't, like, say, well, I don't care about Jesus, or I don't entirely care about the church. Like, they still adhere to that, they still believe that, they're not anti any of that, but they just don't know where they fit in the church anymore. So they're kind of like, do I, am I connected to the church? Um, I mean, it's, it's just a word to try to describe that, that reality. Just as Cornelius was culturally aware of the religiously wrapped message of the good news of Jesus and the salvation that he offers, so too in our day and age would an um-type person, or even a done-type person, or really anyone who has grown up connected to the church or faith in some way, they would mostly be able to make sense of the religiously wrapped message of the good news of Jesus that we present as Christians. Like they have an understanding of that culture, that language, like they know what we're talking about. They may not do anything with it, but they understand what we're talking about. Like there's a there's already a category for them to engage with that language. But what about those in the the nun category? How might the good news of salvation in Jesus be made known to those who don't have a church background, who wouldn't know anything about what we're even talking about? Like, they don't even have a category of what church life would even be about or following Jesus. How is it made known to those who aren't likely to come to a church gathering? How is it made known to those who are post-Christian in their thinking? Mitch Knight has mentioned a YouTube channel called Abroad in Japan for probably over a year now. And I took some time this week to to check out a few episodes. And each episode is about a British guy who is living abroad in Japan. And he captures a different aspect of Japan and Japanese culture in each episode. In one episode that I checked out, the host of the show tries a a variety of popular Japanese convenience store foods and drinks. So he kind of like shows it, describes what's on the package, tries it, and it's kind of just funny because it's like stuff we wouldn't think you would find at a convenience store necessarily. But one of the things that he tried was a drink called Coca-Cola Plus. The guy describes it as a normal Coca-Cola, but has dextrin in it which is supposed to help with fat absorption. The guy describes that this kind of Coca-Cola is only available in Japan and a few other Asian countries. Coca-Cola Plus, if you will, is an expression of Coca-Cola that translates to the culture of Japan. It probably wouldn't fit in our culture, and that's probably why they don't sell it in our culture. 
But what's interesting about this product is that it is a product still rooted in the traditional Coca-Cola taste. It's not a totally new thing. It's still rooted in the, the old, but it's expressed in a new way that the culture understands. And I think this can be a helpful metaphor for how the gospel message of salvation in Jesus made its way beyond Jewish culture or how it can make its way beyond our um, sort of Christian culture that, that is kind of in the history of our country here. It's a com- comparable metaphor to what we see happening in non-Jewish areas throughout the book of Acts in the Bible. The church in Antioch is one specific example of this. Acts 11 gives a further description of the formation of the church in Antioch. And one descriptor that is given of the church in Antioch in Acts 11 is that this is where followers of Jesus were first called Christians. This is where we have the first use of that term to to describe followers of Jesus. And while we could spend a lot of time unpacking the many nuances of that particular term, one particular nuance worth highlighting for our purposes today is this. Antioch is one of the first places where followers of Jesus are identified by their association with Jesus alone. As was noted earlier, the earliest converts to Jesus came out of the Jewish tradition, and their expressions of faith were still associated with their tradition, as evidenced by their meeting together daily in the temple. Like, that's where they understood to go worship. And by how many still adhere to the way of life laid out in the Mosaic Law, we see that controversy pop up here in Acts 15 where some people are like, well, no, like, we were Jews, we followed Jesus as a Jew, like, everybody should do it this way. And so they they thought everybody should kind of continue it, following the Law of Moses and, you know, being a follower of Jesus at the same time. In general, the Jewish faith, we could say, was typically expressed by a coming mentality, It was always a type of worship that had to do with coming to something or a place. By coming to the temple to worship. By coming to Jerusalem to worship. By coming to Israel to worship. Later, more local expressions of this take place in the need to come to the local synagogue when there wasn't a temple to go worship in. But that was where you came to hear the law of Moses read and taught. Much of Israel's worship was expressed by, come here. Even for other nations, it was a call to come here to see what God is doing in and through this nation. But the churches of non-Jewish people began to break away from this pattern. The church in Antioch demonstrates this. The controversy over non-Jews not needing to be circumcised or abide by all the laws of the Mosaic law demonstrate this, where they start to break away from that pattern. As the good news of salvation in Jesus made its way to non-Jews, faithful responses to following Jesus took shape in fresh expressions. Expressions that fit Greek or Roman or fill-in-the-blank culture more than it fit Jewish culture. But while the expressions of faith in Jesus took different shapes than it did in Jewish culture, at the heart of all expressions of faith is the life of Jesus, the revelation of God. This is like how Coke expressed itself in Japan in a certain way. So too, the church at the heart of it is always the life of Jesus. But it expresses following Jesus in particular cultures in particular nuanced ways according to that culture. What we see here is that new expressions of faith are not a license to be church however someone wants. Rather, new expressions of faith are always rooted in the life of Jesus. 
My wife and I like the uh, restaurant Lloyd's or Lloyd's Taco Factory, as it's more formally known. They are known by their locations on Hurdle Avenue and Main Street in Williamsville. Maybe some of you have been there before. But they are also known for their food trucks. You've probably seen their food trucks at various locations around western New York or maybe at some event that you've been at. A lot of times you can see where they are on social media under their slogan, Where's Lloyd? A food truck like Lloyd's allows a company like that to take its, pe- its food to the people. The food truck allows people in a particular area to get a taste of what the full restaurant is like. The food truck is a legit expression of the experience you would have at the restaurant, but it's also not the fullest experience of what going to the restaurant would be like. Similarly, it's possible for people to encounter the good news of Jesus through our outreach expressions. Expressions that take the way of Jesus to people where they are rather than having them come to us. However, just like a food truck, these expressions are just slivers of what the full church is like. We see a similar dynamic with Peter's experience with Cornelius in Acts 10 and in Acts 15. Cornelius had an experience with Jesus in his own environment, but that experience, as legit as it was, was not a mature expression of the church. Cornelius and his family would still need to learn to engage daily and weekly with God beyond just that one moment of encountering God. They would still need to be connected to other churches not so that they don't get off course in their beliefs and their way of following Jesus. They would also need to figure out how to reach out to the cultures around them, just like Peter did to them. The expression of faith that Peter extended to him got Cornelius engaged with the church, but that expression was not the fullest expression of the church. This model offers us a way forward with those in our life who don't yet know the salvation of Jesus as well. Outreach helps engage people with Jesus, but outreach doesn't give a full experience of the church. A person can experience the fullness of the church in coming to an established church like we are part of here, or in a newly formed expression of the church. But just experiencing God one moment is not the fullness of what the church is. People need to live into the life of the church, not just have an encounter with God. We're inviting them into the family of God and all the ways of God's family, and that's what the the church is. Salvation in Jesus is made known by the expressions of faith that we extend into the world. As we reflect on non-Jews like those, uh, like Cornelius and, and those in Antioch coming to know the salvation of Jesus... May our imaginations be stretched to consider how we might extend the good news of salvation of Jesus through fresh expressions of faith to the people around us. Are we stuck in the way we've become accustomed to it of, well, just come to do, just come do what I do? Which there's validity in that. I'm not saying that, but not all people are going to just flock to what we do. How do we then translate what is meaningful for us in Jesus into a way that's meaningful for them in their life? In a culture that has more recent history of being considered Christianized, to some degree, some people will still understand that lingo and come here. But we also live in a culture that is becoming more post-Christian, where many people are disconnected or have no history of awareness with the church or the Christian faith. And our traditional methods of outreach may not suffice like they used to. So how might God be calling us to expand our imaginations and how we extend fresh entry points for people to encounter the salvation of Jesus. 
Some historical examples of this can be seen in what we've already looked at in the church in Antioch, where expressions of faith were extended into the home setting. What was interesting about churches that were non-Jewish is that they tended to start meeting in homes and not the temple or the synagogue because that wasn't part of their culture. They moved away from the Jewish culture into something that was their own culture, but it was still following Jesus. Another example in history is who we commonly know as St. Patrick. But what was interesting about St. Patrick's uh, work in Ireland is that the way he outreached to people in Ireland was that he interacted with a lot of nomadic tribes that kind of moved up, like they would live along a river and kind of just move along, if you will. And as they moved, he would move with them. As they moved again, he would move with them. Like, he was trying to contextualize his life of following Jesus into their way of life. He wasn't like, here's the building. Even though you move over here, you're still going to come here to encounter Jesus. No, he tried to contextualize it to their culture. Or another person is John Wesley, who is sort of the father of what we know as the Methodist Church today. But he extended Jesus into the everyday rhythms of people's lives in England by organizing small gatherings or bands, as he called them, where people could encounter the salvation of Jesus outside of Sunday worship. Or maybe a more local uh, example for us is if you've every time you come in and out of this building, there's a rock out here next to the building that says Alley Project. And this is a kind of code term for. Um, an unreached people group in Africa that we as a church have a long-term goal of seeing a full expression of the church take shape and flourish there. One of our partners in this project is doing that very thing with immigrants in Buffalo. And for a while, they have been engaging in one-on-one Bible discussions or small prayer gatherings or English classes or helping with general needs in the community. And while these are just expressions that are allowing people to engage with God and touches with the church. What is starting to bloom there is also a maturing, full-fledged version of what the church can be there. It's starting to take shape in that way. But it's going to look very different than what we do here on a Sunday morning. It might be in someone's home. Their order of worship may look entirely different. Their gatherings throughout the week may look totally different than ours. But this illustrates how contextual extensions of our faith help people to engage with the salvation of Jesus. With the long-term hope that those people make their way into an existing church or that those expressions can blossom into full expressions of the church in their particular context. In our own church body, how might God be shifting our imagination and how we extend the good news of salvation in Jesus to the world around us? It's looking more and more like people are coming less and less to us. So how are we going to then be going to them? I don't have the answers for this, but it makes me think, like, what could things like VBS or Upward or children's ministry, or youth ministry, or men's and women's ministry, or marriage ministry, or nerd ministry, or sports ministry, or music ministry, or multicultural ministry, what would that look like if our approach approach were about going to them and contextualizing Jesus to them, where they are? And please don't hear me saying that we should just give up with what we're doing here right now, because what we're doing right now shapes and forms and grounds us in being the kind of people that then go and do that. So it's meaningful what we're doing now. But how could God be possibly shaping us to blend this other way of being on mission as a church, as God has been on mission throughout history, going to the people? How could we continue what's 
what we're doing to ground ourselves here, but then extend Jesus into the world around us. Salvation is known to others. Salvation in Jesus is made known to others by the expressions of faith that we extend into the world. Salvation in Jesus is made known by the expressions of faith that we extend into the world. Today, if you're here and you've never embraced the salvation of Jesus, I invite you to embrace that by expressing faith in Jesus in baptism. And if you're not sure what that looks like, I encourage you to find me or find any other follower of Jesus that you know here and set a time to discuss further what the scriptures have to say about taking that step. But if you are here and have already embraced the salvation in Jesus, I invite you to consider how God has positioned you and gifted you to extend his salvation to people who haven't yet embraced him. What subculture are you already connected to? What skill can you offer to others to help make Jesus known to them? You might be the person who has DIY skills or technology skills or music skills or artistic skills or a passion for gaming or a passion for coaching sports or a niche hobby that others are already gravitating toward. How can you use that connection to then extend salvation of Jesus into that community? And who else in our church body could partner with you in being on mission to that subculture of people? Salvation in Jesus is made known by the expressions of faith that we extend into the world. Salvation in Jesus is made known by the expressions of faith that we extend into the world. Would you join me in prayer as we close? Father God, thank you that you came to us. You didn't make us come to you, nor could we have. Father, we're grateful that that's how you treated us, and we're grateful that you've included us in your family. Father, as much as we have experienced the benefits of your salvation and being a part of your church body and and how you take us from a life that's oriented toward death and into a life that's oriented toward fullness of life. Father, help us to know how we can be a part of extending that good news into the people who live around us, into the world around us. Father, help us to not get hung up on extending your good news to people who may then in turn express worship and following you in a way that's different than how we've become accustomed to doing it. Father, you're so much bigger than our limited imaginations, and help us to see that. Help us to see the beauty of what your church can be around the world as it's expressed in various different cultures and subcultures. Father, lead us and guide us as we uh, participate in your mission. It's by the power of your spirit through your son, Jesus, that we pray this. Amen.